I love that sound. It's a great sound. <laughs> it's a terrifying sound, it's, actually. Yeah, it is, but it's so fucking cool. Uh, Hi, guys. Or folks. Hello, everyone. <laughs> How's it going? We're back after our little mini break. Sorry that took longer than we expected. Uh, I've had some family emergency kind of issues to be dealing with the last couple weeks, and so our initially scheduled break turned into a slightly longer break. And uh, we're back now. Things are not actually entirely dealt with on my situation, but that's not a big deal. We'll keep going because the show must go on. Pretty much, yeah. And uh, today we're talking about submarines. Yay. Which is kind of great because uh, our last episode was on the moon landing. And a thing I've read about submarines is that being in a submarine is the closest thing to being in space that you can get to without actually being in space. I can agree with that. And it's true, especially after having done all this research. I completely understand why people say that now. Yeah, yeah. it's... uh... It's uh, something that's long, hard, and full of semen. Hey. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Have you never heard that joke before? I certainly have. I did not expect it to go there now. <laughs> but we're there. Get it, I got to get it out of my system early. Are you done? Yes. Good. Okay, cool. So we're going to try and keep this episode sort of brief, I guess. There's actually a surprising like lack of information on submarines, which is funny because there's a shitload of movies that have been made about submarines. Obviously, submarines are very top secret, and militaries don't particularly like to divulge secrets about their submarines. We found, obviously, stuff to talk about, but some of the sources are a little sketchy. And there's actually just not that much information about some of them, too. So we're doing our best. Um, that and how little they've actually been used by also. other countries other than the British, or other than the Americans and the Russians, Yeah, I mean. Also that. And the Germans. But we'll be talking about the Germans. Yeah, I mean... Submarines are, they're so fascinating because I feel like there's a, there's more, I don't know, there's, there's not that many movies, I guess, made about them, but like, there's more submarine movies, I feel like, than, like, it, it gives off the idea that they're used, I think, way more than they actually are. <laughs> Probably. Like, or they're set during a time where they were. Well, yeah. Yeah, obviously, they were, definitely. But, I mean, submarines have other uses other than by militaries, so I'm just going to kind of... I guess for those of you who don't know what a submarine is, it's a watercraft which is capable of operating underwater. Uh, generally, it is made out of steel and covered in rubber, depending on the type of boat. But they're usually referred to as boats, actually, rather than ships, which is a fun fact I learned, <laughs> irrespective of their size. Yeah, so they're, they're pretty cool. They're used mostly by the military, so I think most people understand submarines as being used by the military, especially the United States military and the Russian slash Soviet military. But before, during, and since, submarines have actually been used for other purposes as well. Mostly scientific, I would say. There's a lot to be learned by sending things to the bottom of the ocean to do research. They've helped us. I mean, I think we were all introduced to scientific submarines by watching Titanic (laughs) 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 and seeing James Cameron's documentary on the Titanic because he used a team of submersibles to find... That, and he went, when he went to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. Also that. Actually, most James Cameron things. Lots of great submersible yeah. footage on James Cameron's documentaries. Well, apparently, that's an interesting fact. The only reason why he agreed to direct the Titanic, because he actually didn't want to direct it, is because he knew he'd get funding to go actually look at the Titanic. That's cool. That actually makes me like him more. <laughs> or less. I'm not really sure, actually, how that makes me feel, but that's kind of neat. It's on the fence about James Cameron. But anyway. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. So submarines are typically measured uh, in terms of their weight. They're measured like most ships, which is based on displacement. And I'll talk about displacement a little bit more, but just a quick kind of rundown. 
So the displacement of a boat or a ship is the weight, approximate weight of that vessel in tonnage of water displaced. So like if a boat displaces 25,000 tons of water when it's on the surface, that's approximately what its weight is. That's how they weigh it. And since it's a fluid weight and it changes based on how much weight is on the ship, etc. If it's a tanker fully loaded, it might displace more water than if it's not. So if, and submarines have two displacements, one on underwater and one a, on, on the surface as well. All surface ships and sub submarines, when they're surfaced included, are in positively buoyant conditions, so they weigh less than the volume of water they would displace if fully submerged. So that's cool. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not really sure. There's not a lot to say on them other than like they're they're used for all types of stuff, like scientific research, uh, drilling and mining, uh, rescuing other people off of submarines espionage espionage searching downed ships i mean one of the ships actually i'll talk about a little bit later they're still using you know submersibles to go down and check on this submarine that's at the bottom of the Barents sea mm. uh, to make sure that it's not leaking radiation <laughs> into the ocean so <laughs> yeah that's good um it's not turns out uh yeah they're used for all, all types of stuff and uh, actually inter- also used for drug running now yeah. So the Colombian cartels have gotten even wealthier and smarter, and it's honestly ridiculous, but um, they've had cartel submarines. Well, <laughs> a lot of you probably have already seen this video of, I think it was the U.S. Coast Guard uh, yeah. storming onto a narco sub. I can't remember. It was a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago at this point, but yeah. So they're not exactly submarines. They can't go far under the water, most of them. It's actually really funny because on the like official kind of wiki page about submarines, it talks about like different things they're used for. So it says, quote, Although the majority of the world's submarines are military, there are some civilian submarines which are used for tourism, exploration, oil and, oil and gas platform inspections, and pipeline surveys. Some are also used in illegal activities. <laughs> <laughs> uh, other than that, though, we're mostly going to focus on military uses because that's really the primary use of them and the primary use like source of funding for submarines the united states still has quite a decent size like current fleet and they always have them running so usually submarine crews will have this is actually important to the general story about submarines too so submarines typically at least modern day submarines and i imagine they used to be the same during the cold war they were for sure um most submarines have two different crews and so one crew goes out on patrol for however long and then they come back and they switch, and the submarine's always in operation. While the number of submarines from each program is reduced, I believe the U.S. fleet is still much smaller than it used to be. I believe they still have submarines that are always in use. Okay. Maybe only one or two, but I mean, compared to yeah. research submarines that are constantly in use, I'm not really sure. I don't have any way of really knowing this or tracking this. Uh, I don't think anyone does. <laughs> but Probably not. But I would assume that. Truthfully, I think that military submarines are still most used. So obviously, since we're a history podcast, we're going to talk about the history of submarines, too. <laughs> Not just what they are. Yeah. So That was a terrible description of what they are, by the way. I'm really sorry about that. I really fucked that up. That was actually pretty good. Yeah, I probably could have found a lot more specs and stats, but it's also really dependent on the specific submarines. So. But, yeah. So submarines have been used a lot longer than you probably anyone probably ever knew. The earliest known design was drawn up by British mathematician William Bourne sometime around 1578. I mean, it wasn't built or used in 1578, but that's as far back as, like, they were thinking about what if we could make a device that can go underwater with people inside. (laughs) The first working prototype of 
and was designed and built by Dutch polymath and inventor Cornelius Drebbel, which is an awesome name. Yes, that is an awesome name. <laughs> Around 1620, his craft reportedly dove 15 feet into the Thames River before none other than King James. And thousands of onlookers. None of Drebbel's plans have survived, and therefore the mechanism behind his design are unknown. Fair enough. <laughs> which is uh, too bad, because... I don't know. I love that whole idea of like looking at early designs of stuff and then people building them to see if they could work. Yeah. So another known early design was called the Turtle, and it was designed during the American Revolution by David Bushnell as a secret weapon for the Americans. It was made of wood and with a capacity of only one person. And it was moved by a hand crank and a foot treadle. So the hand crank would be what would move the propeller and the treadle would be turned to the left and turned to the right. Its purpose was to approach ships undetected, screw holes into the side and plant mines as a mean of sabotage. A turtle was first used on September 7th, 1776 by Continental Army soldier Ezra Lee, who attempted to sabotage the HMS Eagle that was stationed in the New York Harbor. His mine failed to attach and he was forced to abort and detonate the bomb in open water. This is still considered the first submarine attack in world's history. However, the Turtle Project was abandoned after several other missions failed to sink or significantly damage other ships. Nevertheless, George Washington himself called the project a genius. Just was a bit ahead of its time. A little bit. Kind of. It was, a, it was very ambitious. But I mean, at least it could work and not... You know, drown the person. It's a start. <laughs> it's a start. <laughs> Not drowning is a good sign. <laughs> there were other submarines, like early submarines around, including one named the Nautilus. And for those of you who are familiar with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the for those of you who don't know, the, in that book, the name of the submarine is the Nautilus, and it hunts a giant squid? Yes, giant squid. The other... Probably more successful submarine that is pretty interesting to, that we that we really need to talk about is the CSS Huntley. It was designed by Horace Lawson Huntley, a marine engineer and Confederate supporter, and he worked to produce submarines for the Confederate Navy during the American Civil War. In 1862, the Union la Navy launched what is known as the USS Alligator, and it is the first known American Navy submarine. It conducted no missions and sunk in a storm somewhere off Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, and it has never been found since. So they have no idea where it is. Fair enough. So it was not a success. <laughs> Huntley designed and constructed his own submarine <coughs> for the Confederates, which launched in 1863. The machine was around 12 meters long, propelled by giant hand crank, and could fit eight individuals with one torpedo. So literally, it was eight men around this giant hand crank that went the, down the length of this submarine and they would just crank it. So, yeah, that's how they moved. It was, it was seven sailors and one officer that was on the ship. Or boat, excuse me. The submarine did not fully submerge, but was still, no, like, nonetheless considered a submarine because it was mostly underwater. The machine was sketchy and sunk twice during trials, losing all hands on the second. The first incident occurred when the left 
uh, the lieutenant on the boat accidentally stepped on the driving plane while the, a hatch was still open. And two crewmen managed to escape, but the remaining five died as a result of drowning. The second incident happened during a mock attack when it failed to surface and all eight crewmen died. Hmm. So that gives you a bit of a pause that during its first two runs, it killed people. <laughs> I think, to be fair, most, at least that I've noticed in my research, is that most early submarines led to a lot of death. Mm -hmm. Shit's dangerous, turns out. Yeah. <laughs> Both times the sum they managed to salvage the submarine for reuse. It saw action only once on February 17th, 1864. The large USS Housatonic, a sloop of warship, was blockading the Charleston, North Carolina harbor. Huntley was authorized to attack the ship and managed to fire its torpedoes, actually sinking the ship and killing its five-man crew. This was the first ever... Success like this is the first ever submarine to have successfully sunk a ship in history. Celebrations were short-lived, however, as Huntley failed to return to base. The submarine disappeared along with its eight-man crew, and for over a century, they had no idea where this thing was. However, the wreck of the Huntley was discovered in 1995, four miles off of Sullivan's Island in Charleston, 30 feet below the water and buried under sand and sediment. The machine was recovered from the water in 2000, and the remains of the eight crew were later recovered and buried in, on April 17, 2004, in Magnolia Cemetery in Charleston. A conservation and restoration effort is currently still being conducted on Huntley, and it is set to be the centerpiece of a new museum on the decommissioned naval base in North Charleston. So that is the fate of the first successful-ish war submarine. And, uh, yeah, it's the only time it saw action. They have no idea how it sunk, except probably harsh weather. So it kind of shows you just how shoddy these things were, is that in harsh weather, weather it can go down. <laughs> yeah, not great. <laughs> no, I mean, this thing didn't go far underneath the water, but still. we're gonna. I'm skipping over quite a bit of history because, well... It's a lot of stuff that doesn't, it's like the same. <laughs> yeah, it's like there's repeats. people trying, failing, and then actually people kind of gave up on submarines again, yeah. or until the 1900s, really. Yeah. And so, but one particular group of group that was known to use U-boats, or submarines, I gave myself away, submarines pretty regularly were the Germans in both the world wars and they were known as U-boats which was short for Undersee-Booten Lindsay's, Lindsay's laughing at my, my shoddy German I um, just love German as a language Okay. also that but yeah <laughs> thanks uh, so between August 1914 and October 1918 the German Imperial Navy engaged in a major U-boat campaign against the Entente powers the purpose was to cut off the means of supply between Britain, France and the colonies and it was nearly successful on September 5th 1914 the first ship sunk during the war was the HMS Pathfinder after a torpedo fired by U-boat 21 struck and ignited the ship's magazine, killing 259 sailors on board. 
Later that month, on September 22nd, U-9 attacked the Abukir, the Hogue, and the Cressy. All three ships sank with 1,460 sailors killed. So, by now you can see that they perfected the submarine to actually, you know, work and do its intended job. Three weeks later, the U-9 once again struck and sunk the HMS Hawk, leading to all of its crew being awarded the Iron Cross Second Class, with its captain Otto Vettingen receiving the Iron Cross First Class. So pretty early on, the U-boat was unbelievably successful. Attacks on merchant ships began in October 1914, a highly controversial move as these ships were unarmed and usually from neutral powers. Much of the British food was supplied by Canada and the United States, which made these merchant ships vital for, to Britain's survival. Several of the vessels attacked were from neutral countries, as I mentioned before, as the submarine captains did not want to become overt by having to surface in order to check if the vessels were neutral or from the Entente. German U-boats sunk 29 merchant ships in the first month of what is known as unrestricted submarine warfare. By far the greatest disaster during the campaign was the sinking of the HMS Lusitania. This was the a Cunyard Line vessel taking passengers to the United States from the UK. And if you and listen to our Titanic episode. episode, you'll remember this. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to go through it again real quick. So on the night of... Crossover so, episodes. Yay. <laughs> um, it could hold 2,198 passengers and 850 crew. So it was a big ship, and if you want to know what it looked like, it looked it was a lot of uh, it was often described as similar to the Olympic class. I mean, they look extremely similar yeah. to each other. On the night of May seventh, nineteen fifteen, Lusitania was off the coast of Old Head of Kinsale, Ireland, when U twenty intercepted it. It fired a torpedo at the ship, which ripped into the center, and Lusitania sank eighteen minutes later with. 1,198 out of 1,959 of those on board dying as a result. Calling it a disaster is a... Mild understatement? Yeah, it's a very huge understatement, actually. And it caused a lot of controversy. The international community condemned Germany for the sinking, and the event was give, given as a reason for the United States entering the war two years later. Furthermore, the use of unrestricted submarine warfare was scaled back heavily following the sinking. After the renewed unrestricted campaign in 1917, 80% of the merchant ships bound for Britain were sunk in the first month that this began. Convoys were then introduced to deter attacks, which worked dramatically, with only 27 out of 8,894 ships lost. 14 U-boats were destroyed. However, hospital ships were sunk by U-boats beginning in 1917, German submarine warfare was suspended in October 1918, and the, and the war ended a month later. A total of 12.5 million tons of Entente shipping was destroyed during the war by U-boats alone. Damn. Yeah. 155 out of the 178 U-boats that were lost during the war were lost in the Atlantic, because a lot of people forget there was fighting in Asia during the Second World War, or during the First World War, excuse me. Under the terms outlined in the Versailles Treaty, the successor Reichsmarine was restricted from having submarines. The remaining U-boats were surrendered to the Allied powers where they were studied and then eventually broken down for scrap. The thing about it is like when 
ever a country like whenever in like the second world war and the first world war whenever they had to like surrender their armaments especially like planes or ships or submarines these ships and submarines were like usually broken down Mm -hmm. and then used as scrap metal to rebuild whatever yeah when hitler came to power he subsequently began breaking aspects of the versailles treaty surprise surprise shocking If, if you don't know that about hitler well you're living in iraq This included the construction of new U-boats and the training of their crews. These new vessels used large diesel, like huge diesel engines. When the Second World War broke out, Germany set out to secure the Atlantic and block the UK from receiving shipments from its dominions and the US. The campaign was an initial success for the Kriegsmarine. However, things changed in 1942 when the Americans entered the war, providing their merchant marine and navy therefore increasing both the tonnage of supplies and the number of ships ready to protect against U-boats. I should have mentioned this before, but like prior to this, uh, Germany did attempt like a capital ship program, but that was all scrapped after the sinking of the Bismarck because, as one might expect, capital ships are expensive. So instead... Hitler decided that the British could mostly have the Atlantic and he would use only some, like mostly submarines to fuck up the merchant marine and the, all the, the supplies. So we're going to tell some brief story, like our favorite kind of stories. I mean, they're not all our favorites. Some of them are just sad, but need to be talked about. In yeah. Fairness. This one is kind of funny. Fair enough. Some of them are. U-1206 was a U-boat that was sailing off of the coast of Peterhead, Scotland on April 14, 1945, which is about 24 days before Victory in Europe Day. It was 200 feet below the water on patrol duty, observing ships coming and going from around the Scapa Flow area of the United Kingdom. A sailor misused the new toilet, which in, as a result caused large amounts of water to flood into the boat. The water leaked into the batteries, which were located beneath the toilets, leading to the release of chlorine gas, because that's what happens when batteries mix with water. <laughs> Not wanting the crew to choke or suffocate, Captain Carl Adolf Schlitt ordered the vessel to surface to allow the venting of gas. This allowed... British observation posts to spot the submarine and British patrol ships attacked the boat. Four sailors died, one during the attack and three from drowning, and the remaining 46 were captured. (laughs) I also gotta point out, they almost had a captain named Shit. (laughs) They were so close to having a captain, but but no. But it was uh, no doubtedly a shitty situation for, for them. After the war, the most of the U-boats were scrapped and used to actually rebuild Germany, along with a lot of their bomber planes and allied ships and yada, yada, yada. But after that, uh, the submarines would basically be primarily used by only two countries. Yeah. And surprisingly, oh. one of them wasn't Britain. <laughs> yeah. But we'll for, get to that later. For all of the, the Royal Navy's prestige. <laughs> submarines are not one of them. Submarines apparently were not, not a thing. So as Jonah had talked about, the Americans obviously have an illustrious history of submarines dating back to the <laughs> Civil War. 
And they were used... The, the U.S. also did use submarines during World War I, uh, as, the, as the submarine really did come of age during this period. Um, they did not have a large part in the war in general anyways, and didn't really use their submarines a lot, except for to help the, the Royal Navy as reinforcements, essentially, to, to ward off German U-boats. And it was fairly similar during World War II, although the Americans did actually use their own submarines to attack Japanese merchant shipping. So much as the Germans attacked the British and Canadian and merchant shipping to try and cut off supplies, the Americans did the same thing to the Japanese. Makes sense. Japanese are also an island. They need supplies. Why not sink them? Can I point something out real quick? Yeah. I don't know if you mentioned this, but uh, the documentary we were watching, we were watching a documentary that's from the 90s. Oh, yeah, I was going to talk a little bit more of that later. But one of the things that they mentioned is that the Japanese did not use their submarines they had submarines, but they didn't use them to yeah. their potential. They were used primarily as supply shipping and troop. Yeah, they weren't really utilized as much. But the American num- the Americans really took a toll on their merchant shipping because starting in July 1941, the Japanese had approximately... Had a, they had a really large fleet, sorry. Um, they had a really large fleet, and by 1945, like... I'm just going to use the index numbers because they... Um, are easier to <laughs> to explain, but basically in 1941, the index number, they had, you know, say roughly 100 ships, and by 1945, they had 23. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> and so, they obviously had a lot more ships than that, the numbers are actually, like, significantly higher, obviously, but just, like, as an index number to try and get the idea, yeah, they lost, like... A lot of ships. Eight, yeah, like 70 to 80% of the fleet is pretty, pretty large. Uh, actually, sorry... The submarines themselves were actually responsible for 55% of Japan's merchant marine losses. Um, other allied navies added to the toll, so it wasn't just the Americans, but regardless, 55% is pretty huge. Mostly the Americans. Yeah, it was mostly them. And, and 55% of being responsible for 55% of Japan's merchant marine losses is a pretty large percentage to be, to be responsible for. Um, the Navy also did adopt an official policy of unrestricted submarine warfare. Um, and it appears the policy was executed without the knowledge or prior consent of the government. <laughs> so, uh, submarines tend to work alone pretty often, and obviously the Navy decided that this was no different. Yeah, so in addition to sinking Japanese merchant ships, uh, post-war records indicate that uh, Japan lost 686 warships of 500 gross tons or larger to submarines during 1,600 war patrols. Only 1.6% of the total U.S. naval manpower was responsible for America's submarine... Sorry. Was responsible for uh, America's success on its Pacific high seas. More than half of it... Half of total tonnage sunk was accredited to U.S. submarines. So, the... Yeah. They were... Had... Obviously, it was tremendously successful. And they were achieved at the expense of only 52 subs with 374 officers. 3,131 enlisted volunteers were lost during combat against Japan. So, not terrible, (laughs) but not great. Uh, Japan lost 128 submarines during World War II in Pacific waters. American casualty counts represent 16% of the U.S. operational submarine officer corps and 13% of its enlisted force. So it did kind of wipe it out at the same time, but they also did have tremendous, tremendous success. But submarines really didn't come of age until the Cold War. Sorry, can I just explain something? Like you said, the Americans entered unrestricted submarine warfare in the Pacific, right? Yeah. Well, one of the men who was on 
uh, trial during Nuremberg was yeah. Karl Donitz, Donitz yeah. who Dernitz. was... Huh? Dernitz. Dernitz, yeah. Admiral Dernitz. Admiral Dernitz, who is uh, Supreme Commander of the Kriegsmarine from 1943 until 1945. And one of the reasons he, he was charged with one count, conspiracy to commit crimes against humanity, war crimes and crimes against humanity, among a bunch of other things. But he was actually found not guilty on the first count because his lawyers... And he, 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 like, if he'd found, been found guilty on that charge, yeah, he would have been, been dead. He would have, yeah, he would have been, <laughs> he would have been hanged. Yeah. Um, but he was found not guilty on that because his lawyers actually successfully argued that, uh, the Americans, because he, like, the reason why he was on there is because he committed, uh, unrestricted, yeah. like, submarine warfare. And he also left sailors to drown in the sea. Yeah. Which was against. It's against the, maritime. It's against maritime law. law. Still is. And, uh, but his lawyers said the Americans did the exact same thing yeah. in the Pacific. So why should he be persecuted for something that the Americans aren't being persecuted? Yeah. So he's found not guilty on that charge. However, he's found guilty on the other two charges and spent the rest of his life in prison. Yeah. I mean, like there's a lot of ethical discussions about submarines. I mean, ultimately even to this day, but especially even during, well, during, uh, the cold war, there's just, I mean, because of how they're used, right? The purpose is to run deep run silent and it's like their their purpose is actually to hunt out and kill things like and and so there's a lot of ethical <laughs> ethical questions about submarines and so yeah uh i i think of like submarines during world war ii is similar to the um like the bombers and how everyone calls into question like bombing campaigns and whether or not they should be remembered with as much reverence as we do because in reality, all it did was murder a lot of civilians and set a lot of property on fire. It didn't necessarily do anything other than hope to break the will of somebody. And so I kind of think of submarines in the same vein of like, it's interesting to discuss their legacy, uh, which we can talk about more at the end, but uh, in that kind of sense, because they are literally made to go and kill things. Yeah. <laughs> um, and especially during World War II when they were used against merchant shipping. The Cold War was a lot different with submarines. And I'm going to keep going into that now. So all these submarines up until the 1950s were... The, the U.S. submarine program, I guess I should say, really stayed kind of steady course all the way until the 1950s. And that's when things started to change with submarines. So submarines prior to this point, or at least up until this point, were typically made um, as diesel-electric submarines. So they used their diesel and diesel engines to charge their batteries, which allowed them to, excuse me, have power. So they were essentially tied to the surface, not literally, but figuratively. So diesel, diesel electric engines, you could only be submerged as long as your battery was charged and they weren't as effective. So you had to surface more to run your engines to charge the battery. But that all changed with the U.S. Nautilus in 1955, uh, as it was the first nuclear-powered submarine. So Natilius was put to sea for the first time on January 17th, 1955, and transmitted the historic message underway on nuclear power. Um, the nuclear power plant of the Natilius meant that the boat could stay underwater for literally months at a time, the only operational limit being the amount of food that the boat could carry. And this is true to this day. So this is why submarines are nuclear-powered, if you've ever wondered why. I feel like that's a thing that has always just been said, like nuclear-powered submarines, and no one's ever questioned why they're, why they're nuclear-powered. But it's, it's because of this purpose. It's so that they can stay submerged as long as they want, essentially. Months. And the purpose of this is that the idea of a submarine is that it's most effective when it's submerged. 
being on the surface is useless because people can spot you. They're not very fast on the surface, and they um, they can for the depending on the submarine fire their weapons when they're on the surface. But the point of a submarine is to not be surfaced, and so if you're spending all your time on the surface recharging your batteries, you're not doing a very good job. And this was part of why in World War II more submarines were lost is because German U-boats and things had to surface at some point to charge batteries, so it was easier to spot them. And but once they were nuclear powered, that was no longer a problem. So resupply comes from many subs a lot of the time. <laughs> and this means that even the obstacle of like how many, how much food can be on the boat can be overcome pretty simply. So ultimately, submarines are designed to stay underwater for a very long time now. And as a result, though, this, this huge leap in technology led to something of an arms race between the U.S. and the USSR, as with everything else during this period. <laughs> let's, let's be real here. So the main classes of U.S. submarine, there aren't, there aren't a lot of details, basically, on nuclear submarines in the Cold War Gee, for the why. United States. But, I mean, their main purpose ultimately was meant to be nuclear deterrence. So the reason for this, and this kind of started to come with the U.S. submarine, the USS George Washington, which was the first operational ballistic missile submarine. So what this means is that the George Washington was nuclear-powered like Nautilus, but the George Washington added strategic ballistic missiles, which reached the nuclear triad. It's pretty powerful. So now we have a submerged thing carrying nuclear, nuclear missiles that can hit big targets. While earlier submarines had carried strategic missiles, uh, the boats had been diesel-powered, so they had been required to surface to fire the missiles, but, and they were also cruise missiles, which meant they were vulnerable to missile defense. But ballistic missiles weren't, and the George Washington could fire its ballistic missiles while underwater. So you would never see it coming, which is terrifying. It was obviously a lot less likely to be detected as a result, and its patrol length was also, again, only determined by the amount of food that it had. It carried Polaris missiles, and it superseded all other strategic nuclear systems in the Navy at this point, basically. As soon as this was a possible or a possibility, it, uh, it took over, and so... A ton of nuclear submarines were created and loaded full of nuclear missiles and sent out into the sea as deterrents. <laughs> Deterrent patrols continue to this day. So the main classes of submarine that the United States used were the Los Angeles class, the Ohio class, and the Seawolf class. The Virginia class has since been added, but it was commissioned in 1999, so technically after the Cold War had ended. So again, the main classes were the Los Angeles, the Ohio, and the Seawolf. There have been a total at some point. Of 62 Los Angeles-class submarines commissioned, 18 Ohio-class, and 3 Seawolf. So the first Los Angeles-class was the USS Los Angeles in 1972. The final was the USS Cheyenne in September 1996. The first Ohio was the USS Ohio in April 1976. And the final ship commissioned of the Ohio-class was the USS Louisiana in September 1997. The Seawolf-class, which is a newer which is newer, it was commissioned in 1989 with the USS Seawolf, and was de or the last Seawolf-class submarine was the USS Jimmy Carter in February 2005. Jimmy Carter is one of the few ships of the United States Navy and the third submarine ever to be named for a living person, and the only submarine to be named for a living president, because Jimmy Carter served on submarines. Hmm. He's the only U.S. president to serve on a submarine. Fun fact. In terms of its current force, the United States has 32 Los Angeles-class submarines in commission, two in reserve, 
18 Ohio-class submarines in commission with 14 ballistic missile submarines and four guided missile submarines, making up those 18. Three Seawolf-class attack submarines are in commission, and 15 Virginia-class are in commission, with nine under construction and two on order. And they have also planned the Columbia-class submarine, which they haven't said how many or when it'll be commissioned, but... Currently, there are 48, or there are, sorry, there are 48 planned Virginia-class submarines. And as of May 2018, there's 15. So when I said the U.S. submarine force was still active, that's really what I meant. Gotcha. <laughs> They're still actively building big and large submarines. But the I would say that the prize, really, of the United States submarine, the United States Navy and their submarine class, the, the Los Angeles class was obviously a big one, but the Ohio class is ultimately what the Russians kind of raced to beat in lots of ways. It uh, is one of the largest submarines ever built for the U.S. Navy, and there's only two other classes of submarine that have larger total displacements, which are the Soviet-designed Typhoon class, which I'm actually going to talk about after, and Russia's Bore-class submarine. Um, But the Ohio class still carries more missiles than either of them. It carries 24 Trident missiles apiece versus 16 by the Bore and 20 by the Typhoon. So the Ohio class was designed for extended strategic deterrent patrols. So it was built literally for this purpose of staying underwater forever and uh, (laughs) going around the world. Um, Each submarine is assigned two complete crews called the Blue Crew and the Gold Gold Crew, each typically serving 70 to 90 day deterrent patrols. So this documentary that Jonah was talking about earlier that we were watching... Um, have you seen all of it? Did you watch all of it yet? I didn't watch all okay, of it. Okay, so it's a five or six part. No, maybe only four. It's like between four and six parts. I don't remember now because um, <laughs> I'm exact like that. And it was made by the Discovery Channel. And it was very clearly from like the 90s, but like the mid to late 90s. Uh, it was post-Cold War, but like barely. And um, the boat that they were on, the focus, the one that they focused on the most, the USS... Shit, what was it? The USS Georgia... I want to say it was the USS Georgia. USS shit? Yeah, the USS shit. <laughs> That's what it was. No, I'm pretty sure it was the USS Georgia. And they... Anyways, the name, regardless of the name, uh, it was an Ohio-class submarine that they focused on in that. Oh, it's not the USS Georgia. My bad. The USS Georgia's a Virginia class. <laughs> I apparently don't remember any details about this documentary other than I remember them talking about Ohio-class submarines in particular because they are so large. And they are kind of like the pride of the Navy in that sense. Like, it's like every Navy, you're proud of your really big ships. <laughs> the, the Germans, the Nazi Navy was really proud of the Bismarck. The British were proud of, were proud of Lusitania. They were proud of um, all these big boats. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the British were just proud of their big They were proud Navy. of their big boats in general. Well, their, uh, their big Navy. Their Navy. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so the Ohio class is huge. It is 560 feet in length, so 170 meters. Its displacement surfaced is 16,764 tons. And when it submerged, its displacement is 18,750 tons. Its top speed surfaced is 22 kilometers an hour, so 12 knots. And its submerged top speed is, like, officially, is 20 knots, so 37 kilometers an hour. But its reported top speed submerged is 25 knots, so 46 kilometers an hour. I always find things like that funny. They're like, officially it's this. But like, we can squeeze out an extra, you know, five or ten knots. It's fine. (laughs) We got this. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) I just find that funny. 
But anyway, so the Ohio class was really like the, the creme de la creme of the U.S. Uh, fleet in that in that sense. There are still, yeah, 18 of them that are active, which is pretty fun. <laughs> I don't know. Now I'm just rambling. Anyway, uh, yeah, so those were like the main, the main classes of the U.S. submarines. And then it really, I don't know, there's not a lot of details on the rest of it. Other than I know that there's lots still out there. And obviously there's still 18 <laughs> Ohio class and a bunch of others. Uh, I mean, it's actually mind-blowing to me that there's still 32 Los Angeles-class submarines still in commission. Oh, my God. There's, like, 60 U.S. submarines still in commission. 32 Los Angeles, 18 Ohio, 3 Seawolf, 15 Virginia, and they're, they're adding more. Hey. That's wild. Uh, I know that the Russian fleet is significantly smaller now. But that also, we know about. That we know about. Um, but the Russian fleet, to shore up the other side of this equation... The Cold War, Cold War equation. Uh, the Russian fleet, I think, was larger than the American fleet at its peak. Had significantly more problems, but more numbers. And the Russians tended to have a quantity matters type policy in their navy and their military in general. So the quality didn't matter a ton to them. It was really about having more. Yeah, so the Russians, like the Americans, do have a long history of submarine service as well. Uh, it started in 1907 with the Delphine, which means dolphin. She was fraught with design flaws and lost a number of men, as early submarines did. Uh, it really wasn't until the Akula, which means shark, that the Russians started to find some success. So quick side note about the Akula. It was like the first submarine, but also they have an Akula-class submarine, which the Typhoon was like technically one of. And so all Russian submarines, especially in the Cold War, this is where it gets even more confusing, and when I talk about it, it's going to be weird. So NATO assigns a name to Russian submarines, and then the Russians have assigned names to the submarines. So the Russians don't have an official Typhoon class. Typhoon is the NATO name for the Akula. Okay. And the Yankee class is the NATO name for a different type hotel class. Basically, it was based on Alpha Bravo Delta, you know. Gotcha. <laughs> the NATO NATO assigned names to these submarines because I guess obviously Russia wasn't going to give them details on the submarines. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but Russian Russian naming of their submarines is a little bit different. They're basically given a prefix. So K, T, K, B, C, or M. So K means uh, is a cruiser. T, K is heavy cruiser. B means Bolshaya, which means large. C is Strednaya, which is medium, and M is Malaya, which is small. So that's how they name them. The Russians don't actually give them personal names for the most part, unlike the, the U.S. and other countries. I think the British and you, we all give our ships names. Yeah. Yeah. The Russians do but too. But that was, that was mostly because we were following the Americans. Well, yeah. So. The Russians do for their surface ships. I believe a lot of their ships have names, but they weren't given personal names on the submarines, which is... Sad. I think... I like ship names. I like talking about it. Anyway, I think they're interesting. So NATO gave them names, <laughs> is the point. <laughs> anyway. Uh, the Akula... Anyways, back to the original Akula. It was similar to her predecessors, but was... And was ordered in 1906. She was built at the Baltic Shipyard in St. Petersburg and launched on September 4th, 1907. Um, Akula faced significant in initial problems, and both the electric motor and propellers were replaced. Uh, this is a theme with early submarines in particular, but also Russian submarines. <laughs> Put it this way, if I had to choose a submarine to be on, I'd probably choose an American one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, significantly less chance of sinking. 
The Akula, however, was the first Russian submarine that was actually able to cruise a long distance. So it could actually go places, which made it useful, unlike the others. In 1912, the Akula also made the world's first multi-torpedo volley with five torpedoes. And the Russian program is actually rumored to date back to Peter the Great. Peter the Great was obsessed with creating Russia's navy. It's the reason St. Petersburg exists. He went to war with Sweden and took a lot of land, which is now modern-day Russia and Finland. And got them the Baltic port because until Peter the Great's time, Russia was landlocked except for in the Arctic, which most of the year is covered in ice, so not terribly useful. And so Peter the Great was obsessed with the Navy, and it's not surprising that he would have also been obsessed with the idea of submarines. So obviously nothing really happened, and then fast forward to the 1900s, which is where we're at, but uh, the Russians have a very proud naval tradition. (laughs) And on that little side tangent... The Akula served in the Baltic fleet during World War I, which made, and it made 16 patrols um, and unsuccessfully attacked the German coastal defense ship SMS Beowulf. I don't know what it means by unsuccessfully. It didn't, it didn't sink. I just imagine that like the, the submarines survived, so I imagine it just didn't kill the ship. Probably. Which isn't surprising <laughs> at all. World War I submarines are dicey. Unless you're German. Unless you're German. No one else is good at submarines at this point. The Akula struck a mine and sank near Huma, which is off the Estonian coast, in November of 1915. Akula currently lies there 30 meters below the water. All 35 members of the crew died. Surviving a submarine accident is pretty rare, to be, to be fair. Mm-hmm. That is one of the things about them, which is, I think, also what is comparable to being in space, is that you're, you're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> if something goes wrong, you are, for the most part, you're up shit creek without a paddle. So submarines were obviously important to the Russians, and the USSR actually entered World War II with more submarines than the Germans. But geography and the speed of the German attack precluded it from effectively using more of its numerous fleet. So it used some of its submarines, but the Germans just really had them beat by having access to warmer ports more of the year and being closer to things. So most of their fleet, again, like the Americans, was diesel-powered, diesel-electric, until the 1950s. And when the Americans created the Natilius and created the nuclear-powered submarine, the Russians freaked out, (laughs) as they did with all other nuclear developments, and decided to create their own. And it was done fairly hastily, as also usually done. But, as I said, nuclear power allowed anyone in a submarine to be underwater a lot longer, and that was useful for the Russians as well. So the Russians have three fleets. Well, technically they have four fleets. I think they only have three fleets of submarines. The Russian Navy has the Northern Fleet, which is based in Murmansk, the Baltic Fleet in St. Petersburg, the Black Sea Fleet, which is in Sevastopol, which is in the Crimea, which is also actually a large reason, possibly, why Russia invaded the Crimea recently, because they had a lease on that, and then it was coming up, and they didn't want to lose that naval base. And then they also have the Pacific. There's no real proof to that. That's just a well-hypothesized theory. Yeah, but it's probably true. And also, I mean, it's it's pretty much like accepted as a, as a big reason for why, other than also just wanting to maintain their control. Anyway, not important right now. And then there's the Pacific Fleet, which is based in Vladivostok. Submarines really became important to the Russian Navy in particular, and they were considered the capital ships of the Navy. And this has a lot to do with the fact that Russia's geography is complicated. So the USSR slash, well, USSR at the time, but Russia, I'm just going to keep calling it Russia. Russia obviously expands a large, expands over a large portion of the the world. 
And it has those four ports that I talked about, those four fleets. But the, primarily the problem for Russia is that it's never really had a port that is nice <laughs> to sail out of. They're always covered in ice, with the exception of the Black, Black Sea now. But the thing about submarines that was great for the Russian Navy is that that didn't matter. They could penetrate the ice. They could be under the ice. They could go anywhere. So it meant that they could successfully penetrate blockades or anything, like really anything that the Russians needed to do. Um, so submarines really opened up their navy because it opened up their ports. And they, they really peaked during the, the Cold War. The USSR had the largest fleet during this period. I don't know if it was the largest fleet entirely in the world, but if it wasn't bigger than the U.S., it was second to the U.S. or on par and insanely large. There was a lot of submarines. <laughs> I really want to say it was the largest. I think that documentary said it was the largest, but I should have written that down. And I can't seem to find that information anywhere else because everyone else wants to kind of hedge. Probably because the information is so sketchy, <laughs> which is fair enough. Sub Soviet submarines achieved some unique success in some respects, but they ultimately lagged behind their Western, their Western counterparts, primarily the Americans, in their overall capability, which is unsurprising because the Russians pretty much lagged behind the Americans for most of this, the arms race, both with submarines, with space. Well, space, I guess, was the exception. They got off to a hot start, and then once Korolev died, things really went shit. But anyway... Their submarines were ultimately successful in that they could reach high speeds and they were able to operate at great depths. The Russians had submarines that were reported to have gone deeper than most American submarines had. I don't know if it's because they were just more capable or if they were just more willing to try. I'm not really sure. But they were difficult anti-submarine warfare targets as well because of their multiple compartments, their easy or their large reserve buoyancy and double hull design. So what this means is that if it got into a fight with another submarine, it was actually hard to sink entirely because their submarines were designed to have multiple compartments so that they could seal off anything. Kind of actually how the Titanic was supposed to work. <laughs> Where you seal off a compartment with water so that it keeps water from getting in the other compartments and hopefully you can run enough pumps and things like that to be able to surface and get yourselves out before you actually sink. However, what they were not successful at, <laughs> primarily, was noise damping. So submarines are really unique because driving them is hard because there's no real maps to follow and you can't see anything. And so they have to use sonar and sonar obviously creates noise and submarines create noise. They have engines. This was also another benefit to nuclear power versus diesel electric is that nuclear powered submarines are much quieter. They don't create as much noise as diesel engines, <laughs> which is not surprising. Unfortunately, though, the Russians had never quite figured out the best ways to quiet that noise, <laughs> so they were easier to find. So what generally happened, and this is where strategy differed as a result, Russian submarines tended to sit basically at the bottom of the ocean in a place to hide, and they would sit there and not move until they had to, especially if they knew Americans were in the area. So the North Atlantic was really where most of this battleground took place between the Americans and Russians, underneath the ice sheets and stuff like that, around in the North, the North Atlantic, definitely around the North Pole. They weren't very good at hiding the noise, and the Americans were much better at it. And there was some spy efforts that were mentioned in my research that I didn't really have time to dig too much into, and I'm pretty sure there's not that much detail anyway. <laughs> but I'm pretty certain that the Russians tried to spy on the Americans and figure out how they made their submarines so quiet. <laughs> and it really wouldn't surprise me that they were trying to spy on... I mean, there was, they were obviously trying to spy on each other the entire Cold War, but a big part of it was actually like submarine spying because they wanted to know how many submarines each other had, what they were powered, what they were equipped with, how they made them quiet, 
etc. Uh, Russian boats also carried a lot more primitive sonar technology than the Americans had, so that was also not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Soviet Navy was in possession of numerous purpose-built guided missile submarines, such as the Oscar class, as well as many other ballistic missile and attack submarines. So like I said, m- Russian submarines have NATO names, so Oscar is another one. And I this is all based on, again, like the Alpha Brava, uh, Charlie Delta, Delta sort of system, so the Oscar class. Um, but the most famous, actually, of the Russian submarine classes is the Typhoon class. The Typhoon was built as a reaction, actually, to the Ohio-class submarine that I mentioned. So the Ohio-class was huge. And it had said that it displaced, surfaced was 16,764 tons. Submerged had a displacement of 18,750 tons. So the Typhoon was a big bitch. Submerged, it had a displacement of 48,000 tons. When surfaced, it had its displacement was approximately 24,500 tons. The Typhoon class had a larger surface displacement than the Ohio class has a submerged as has submerged by 10,000 tons. It's fucking huge. Yeah. <laughs> the Typhoon is the largest class of submarine ever built. Yeah. It features six torpedo tubes designed to handle RPK-2 nuclear-armed submarine-launched anti-submarine missiles, or Type 53 torpedoes. A Typhoon can stay submerged for 120 days in normal conditions, and more if deemed necessary. The primary thing in submarine warfare, meaning if necessary, means uh, nuclear war. (laughs) That's what the... Nuclear... Submarines, whenever they say they can stay under or they're prepared to survive longer if necessary, means in case of nuclear war. Their primary weapon system is composed of 20 R-39 submarine-launched ballistic missiles, which is SLBM for short, with a maximum of 10 MIRV, multiple independently targetable reentry vehicle, nuclear warheads attached each. Technically, typhoons were able to launch their long-range nuclear missiles while moored at their docks, which is terrifying. Typhoons have multiple pressure hulls, similar to World War II-era Japanese I-400-class submarines. I actually wish I'd spent more time looking into Japanese submarines now. There's not much. Fair enough. Curious, though. Anyways, basically the Russians simplified what this does, actually, is simplifies the internal design while also making sure the vessel is much wider than a normal submarine. So a typhoon is it's ridiculously large, like wide as well. Yeah, basically. Yeah, that's, that's a typhoon. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I'd actually, I don't actually know if that's a typhoon or not, but... I'll post this on Instagram and, yeah... You'll see what I just showed Lindsay. There's a cool image actually too that I'll also share. It's a, a <clears throat> comparison of the two like side by side in their size. So yeah, the Typhoon is actually like, not only is it longer than the Ohio and bigger in, it's bigger in basically every other way, every way, but it is actually significantly wider. Like the Typhoon is really, really wide. In the main body of the sub, two long pressure hulls lay parallel with a third smaller pressure hull above them, just below the sail, and two other pressure hulls for to- torpedoes and steering. This hull design greatly increases survivability. So even if one hull is breached, the crew members in the other are safe and there is less potential for flooding. So this was actually done for safety purposes. And yeah, I mean, which makes sense. You want to put as much distance between you and water as possible, (laughs) especially when you're under it. The Typhoon is capable of traveling at 28 knots. uh, So it's about its top speed, which is about 52 kilometers an hour. So its top speed is about eight knots higher than the Ohio, but... Only three knots higher than the reported top speed of the Ohio. (laughs) A typhoon carries 160 men, and it's also big enough to boast crew amenities such as a gym, a sauna, and a small swimming pool. Yeah. So in the documentary, 
it, they talk a lot about the typhoon class and they actually show footage of like men sitting in this sauna and then jumping in a pool and it's like a tiny pool it's like a square and it's really small but I mean like it's a pool <laughs> and so something that this documentary talked a lot about was actually just like life on a submarine and what it sort of is like to be a submariner and how it really takes a special type of person to be a submariner or a submariner and talked about like on American boats um, the quality of the food is pretty high so actually in both navies uh, the Russian and American navies, the submarine fleet has the best food of the Navy. Is essentially what every every sailor will ever say is that the, the, the submarines get the best food because they also have to work in the most adverse conditions and uh, never get to see the sun. So for months at a time. So it said that on American crews, the food is really good for the first part of the journey, essentially, because that's how they have the most fresh food. And then as the fresh food dries up, it's back to sort of military rations. And so soldiers or sailors, sorry, know that the end of deployment is coming when the food quality really starts to tank. But on the Russian boats, because they're a lot bigger and also it's just part of the Russian Navy, the Russians have like ridiculous meals all the time for their, uh, their crews because reasons, I don't know. It's, it's much like when you work in isolated places, they tend to make things, make sure things like food and whatnot are really high quality because otherwise morale really suffers and you don't want morale suffering in this type of situation when you're, you know, 20,000 leagues under the sea. <laughs> yeah. That's not really accurate, but you know, anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. So as of 2017, only six typhoons remain in commission and or only one of them actually remains in service, which is the TK-208 Dmitry Donskoy. So it actually got a personal name. It's one of very few Russian boats. And it was launched in September of 1979, the TK-17 Arkhangelsk and the TK-20 Severstal have been decommissioned, but they have not been scrapped yet and remain in reserve. So I guess in theory, they could still be put back into commission. Um, I imagine they're just rusting in some port somewhere. A lot of Typhoon-class submarines and other big Russian submarines were decommissioned and scrapped with the help of the U.S. Navy and with funding from the U.S. government as part of nuclear proliferation and mm. dearmament. But, um, yeah, like I said, early, like I said about early submarines, there was lots of death and issues. Uh, but the Soviet Navy, ultimately, as a whole, was really fraught with a lot of accidents. <laughs> they probably had the m most notable accidents. If the U.S. Navy has had very many, they haven't talked about them. <laughs> probably since World War II, I don't think they've had very many incidents. And if they have, again, they haven't talked about them. But the Russians have had more. <laughs> a lot more. So I'm going to talk about three in particular. Two of them are Soviet issues. One of them is actually technically Soviet because the boat would have been commissioned during the Soviet Union, but was a Russian Navy failure. So the first major, well, it's not the first submarine accident of the Navy, but of the Russian Navy, but the one I'm going to talk about is one that you may have also heard of because Harrison Ford made a movie about it. It's called K-19. It was a hotel class, which was NATO's reporting name for it. And it's first it was a first-generation nuclear submarine equipped with nuclear ballistic missiles. The boat was hastily built by the Soviets, as, as the Soviets did. Uh, in response, <laughs> the, literally everything they've ever built has been hasty. Maybe not literally everything, but pretty much everything. <laughs> yeah, so it was built in response to the U.S. developments in nuclear submarines, so the Natilius and the George Washington, as part of the arms race. Before it was even launched, <laughs> the K-19 killed 10 civilian workers and one sailor. <laughs> due to accidents and fires. <laughs> so, before it was even done being built, killed a lot of people. 
After it was commissioned, it had multiple breakdowns and accidents, and several of which threatened to sink the submarine. <laughs> yeah, off to a good start. On its initial voyage, so this isn't even, yeah, its initial voyage, July 4th, 1961, it suffered a complete loss of coolant to its nuclear reactor, which is not good, because if you know anything about nuclear reactors, it's that they really need coolant or they melt down. So a backup system, which was included in the design for the nuclear reactor, was actually not installed, because Soviet Navy, and <laughs> the captain ordered members of the engineering crew to figure it out, basically. So they needed to cool the reactor to avoid melting down and having a nuclear explosion in the ocean, <laughs> killing everyone. So the engineering crew f- figured it out. They uh, sacrificed their own lives and hastily jerry-rigged a secondary coolant system and kept the reactor from melting down. So, uh, like I said, Harrison Ford made, made a movie about it. It's actually one of, I would say it's in my top five submarine movies. It's high quality. Definitely a little bit cheesy, but it does a really good job of capturing the, like, absolute worst-case scenario fear of every submariner and anyone ever working around anything nuclear, but just generally submarines, it, like, really captures the absolute terror of, like, being underwater on a thing with a nuclear bomb that's about to melt down. And then just the the level of sacrifice that actually took place. So 22 crew total died in the either in the incident, like, immediately or in the within two years due to exposure to radiation. There is a scene actually at the end of K-19 when Harrison Ford, because he's the captain, whatever, they all meet at the grave to talk about the, the men who all died and they were all like still very, you know, grateful for the sacrifices that these men made to try and save all of them. So they were obviously able to stop it from exploding. They brought it back to port, fixed it, etc., And it continued to be in service. But it's also still experienced several other accidents, including two more fires and a collision, because this thing was not seaworthy, clearly, and yet they kept going. The crew actually was inspired to nickname it um, after all of these potentially catastrophic events, so they nicknamed it Hiroshima, which is fitting. Yeah. <laughs> so that was K-19, which I absolutely would never have set foot on. Oh, boy. Especially- I mean, we know it as the Widowmaker because of the movie. Yeah. But it actually was called the Widowmaker as a result because oh, okay. a lot of people died on it, yeah. <laughs> or as a result of it. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I I I was watching something on K nineteen, and apparently, what caused the coolant to fail was a bent fuel rod. Yeah. Which is bad. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I nothing. Know, I could, nothing I about that incident was good. Yeah. I don't <laughs> like, know. If you, I don't know if you. I, I I didn't hear if you mentioned that bit. But I yeah, didn't. Was, but that, a, bent, a bent fuel. I rod. didn't mention that. I didn't look really look too hard into it. I didn't have tons of time, but. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we had a, like I said, we had a break, but I didn't really have that much time because we had a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. There was a bent fuel rod hitting another, like touching another rod, which. Not not ideal. Nope. Yeah. Nothing about K-19 was a good thing. Like it was doomed. It was honestly, I think, jinxed. The fact that 11 people died before it was even done being built is like a sign that you just need to like, nope, we're not doing it. Moving on. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, there was. More incidents. Uh, there's more incidents than the ones I'm just talking about, but these are some of the more, like, famous ones. <laughs> Basically, they were at the middle of, like, two really controversial submarine incidents during the Cold War. Like, the most controversial. Uh, the first was K-, K... I don't actually have a lot on either of them, but... Uh, K-219... Yeah, so K-219 was a Yankee-class ballistic submarine carrying 16 liquid-fueled missiles equipped with an estimated 34 nuclear warheads. And, again, the information's a bit dicey, but... In October 1986, K-219 was on an otherwise routine Cold War mission 
in the North Atlantic, about a thousand ninety, yeah, about a thousand kilometers north of eleven hundred kilometers north of Bermuda. On Friday, October third, the fifteen-year-old submarine suffered an explosion and a fire in a missile tube. The seal in a missile hatch cover failed, allowing salt water to leak into the missile tube and react with the residue from the missile's fuel, liquid fuel. Though there was no official announcement, a published source with no cited sources, so shaky, uh, said the USSR claimed the leak was caused by a collision with the submarine USS Augusta. Augusta was indeed in the area, but both the U.S. Navy and the commander of K-219, Igor Britanov, deny that a collision took place, and they deny to this day that a collision took place. K-219 had previously experienced a similar casualty, and so one of her missile tubes was actually already disabled and welded shut as a result. So there was a book written about it. It was a novelized version of this, and so it, it's, help, it's helpful in understanding essentially what happened. But at 5.30 a.m. Moscow time, seawater leaked into silo 6 of the submarine and reacted with missile fuel. This produced chlorine and nitrogen dioxide gases and sufficient heat to explosively decompose additional fuming nitric acid <laughs> and uh, produced more nitrogen dioxide gas. Weapons officer Alexander Petrikov, or sorry, Petrichov, or... Petrachkov attempted to deal with this by disengaging the hatch and venting the missile tube to the sea. Around 5.32 a.m., an explosion occurred in Silo 6. Two sailors were killed outright in the explosion. A third died shortly from toxic gas poisoning, which sounds horrible. I think I'd rather die instantly in an explosion. So there was a breach in the hull. The vessel immediately started taking on seawater and quickly began sinking from its original depth of 40 meters to eventually reach a depth in excess of 300 meters. The captain sealed all the compartments and fully engaged the seawater pumps in the stricken compartments and it allowed the boat to stabilize at that depth. Because the last thing you want is your submarine just, like, basically sinking without your control. <laughs> it's not great. Uh, 25 sailors were trapped in a sealed section and only after a conference with his incident specialists, the captain allowed the chief engineers to open the hatch and save them. Uh, the nuclear reactor did not shut down automatically like it was supposed to. So Lieutenant Nikolai Belikov entered the reactor compartment but ran out of oxygen after turning just one of the four rod assemblies on the first reactor. So enlisted seaman Sergei Premanin then volunteered to shut down the reactor, operating under instruction from the chief engineer. And working with a full-face gas mask, he managed to successfully shut it down. However, a large fire was happening within the compartment, and it created a lot of pressure. So when he tried to reach his comrades on the other side of the door... He couldn't open it due to the pressure and died of asphy asphyxiation in the reactor compartment. Once they were in a nuclear safe condition and they were stable, Captain Bertanov managed to actually surface the submarine on battery power and was ordered to have it towed back to Murmansk, 7,000 kilometers away, by a Soviet freighter. But towing attempts were unsuccessful, and after subsequent poison gas leaks into the final aft compartments and against orders, Bertanov ordered the evacuation of his crew to the towing ship but remained on the... Uh, submarine himself. Moscow was not happy with Bertanov's inability to repair his submarine and ordered the, off the security officer, who is usually a member of the KGB, uh, Valery Pshekny, I can't say his name, to assume command and transfer the surviving crew to the submarine to return to duty. But uh, before those ridiculously stupid orders were carried out, the flooding reached, reached beyond recovery. And on October 6, 1986, K-219 sank to the bottom of the Hatteras Abyssal Plain at the depth of about 6,000 meters. Britanov abandoned ship shortly before sinking, and her full complement of nuclear weapons were lost with the vessel. So, 34 nuclear weapons at the bottom of the sea. The captain was actually charged with negligence, sabotage, and treason, but they were eventually dropped. 
He was never executed or tried, which was good. Um, <laughs> the book that was written about it got turned into a movie, which was co-produced with the BBC and HBO and actually starred Martin Sheen. I haven't oh, seen it. Oh well. It's called Hostile Waters. Uh, anyway. The captain of the ship, though, captain in, or captain of the boat, sorry, Britanov, uh, sued Warner Brothers for it, though, because Warner Brothers released it in the United States, I think. Britanov sued them because they did not seek his permission, and they portrayed the events in a way that made him look really incompetent, and he wasn't. He actually saved a lot of people. <laughs> it wasn't his fault. Um, so three years after he sued them, though, the courts ruled in his favor, and uh, Russian media reported that the settlement was totaled uh, to be under $100,000. So wow. he made like no money, but I don't know how much the movie made. I don't know how famous it got or how good it was. I haven't seen it. Um, but afterwards, the U.S. Navy released the following statement, quote, The United States Navy does not normally comment on submarine operations, but in this case, because the scenario is so outrageous, the Navy is compelled to respond. The United States Navy categorically denies that any U.S. submarine collided with the Soviet Yankee-class submarine K-219 or that the Navy had anything to do with the cause of the casualty that resulted in the loss of the Soviet Yankee-class submarine. End quote. Uh, all involved to this day still deny that there was any collision between the two boats, so it was obviously some kind of really terrible fake report that the Soviets believed. It was a collision. There was another one in the, North, in the Barents Sea, uh, with the K-278 in 1989, the Komsmolets, which sank due to a fire. So a thing I learned in this documentary was it sank outside Bear Island, which is in Norway. However, the most famous and one of the last serious submarine issues to happen to a Russian sub, although one actually really happened in the last year that I saw in my research. I didn't look into it, but literally like in the last two years, there was a big fire on a Russian submarine. Mm. Uh, anyway, Kursk is the other one I'm going to talk about. The Kosmolets is interesting, but we don't really have time. So Kursk was a Russian Oscar-class submarine, which was taking part in the first major Russian naval exercises in more than 10 years since the end of the Cold War and the subsequent collapse of the USSR. So submarines are obviously really expensive, and Russia was in some turmoil in the early part of the, the, the 2000s, the late, late 90s and 2000s. It was not a good couple of decades. So on August... 12th. They'd, ma they'd maintained the submarine fleet to some extent, but uh, there'd obviously been some issues due to cutbacks and whatnot. So anyways, on August 12th, 2000, Kursk was participating in the Summer X exercise, which included 30 ships and three submarines. It was the largest full-scale naval exercise that Russian Russians had done in a long time, as I'd said. Uh, Kursk recently had won a citation for its excellent performance and had been recognized as having the best submarine crew in the Northern Fleet. And although it was an exercise, Kursk was loaded to the gills with a full complement of conventional combat weapons. It was one of the few submarine boats authorized to carry a full combat load at all times. This included the SSN-16 Stallion anti-ship missiles and the SSN-19 Granite Shipwreck cruise missiles, which were designed to beat the best naval air defenses. So Kursk was like their, the pride of the Russian submarine fleet at this point. Kursk had mythical standing. It was reputedly unsinkable, and here on Panastoria, we know that unsinkable ships often sink. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about a couple. Two of them now. So yeah, reputed to be unsinkable, and there were even claims that it could withstand a direct hit from a torpedo. I honestly doubt that, but anyway. Its outer hull was constructed using 8mm steel plating covered by 80mm of rubber, which minimized other vessels' ability to, de to detect it. The inner pressure hull was made of high-quality 50mm steel plates. 
The hulls were separated by a one to two millimeter gap. The inner hull was divided into nine, nine watertight compartments. Kursk was as long as two jumbo jets. Oh my god. It's huge. Submarines look small, I think, when we see them in like movies and shit like that because they just do. Oh, they're massive. They're incredibly large. At 8.51 a.m. local time, Kursk requested permission to conduct a torpedo training launch and received the response Dobra, which is good. After considerable delay, the submarine was set to fire two dummy torpedoes at the battlecruiser Pyotr Veliki. And at 11.29 a.m. local time, the torpedo crew loaded a practice type 65 torpedo, known as Fat Girl because of its size, into Kursk's number four torpedo tube on the starboard side. At 11.29.34... Seismic detectors at the Norwegian Seismic Array, Norsar, and in other locations uh, recorded a seismic event of 1.5 on the Richter scale, northeast of Murmansk and 80 kilometers from the Kola Peninsula. Two minutes and 14 seconds later, at 11.31.48, a second event measuring 4.2 on the Richter scale, about 250 times larger than the first, was registered on seismographs across northern Europe and was detected as far as Alaska. The second explosion was equivalent to two to three tons of TNT. The seismic data showed that the explosion occurred at the same depth as the seabed. The seismic event showed that the boat had, been, had moved about 400 meters from the location of, of the initial explosion. It was enough time for the submarine to sink 108 meters and remain on the seafloor for a short time. After the initial blast, the sub was on the bottom when the intense initial fire triggered the detonation of between, two and, or sorry, between five and seven torpedo warheads. This explosion, as I had said, was equivalent to over two tons of TNT. It collapsed the bulkheads between the first three compartments and all decks, tore a large hole in the hull, destroyed compartments four and five, and killed everyone still alive forward of the nuclear reactor in the fifth compartment. The nuclear reactors did, however, shut down safely, so that was good. Kind of best-case scenario in that sense. The Russian Navy did not realize that Kursk had sunk and did not initiate a search for more than six hours. They did not declare an emergency for another 11 hours. Some of the crew had initially survived the explosion, but had no way of contacting anyone. The sub's rescue boy had been initially intentionally disabled, so it took more than 16 hours in total to locate the sunken Kursk. 23 sailors in the 6th through 9th compartments took refuge in the small 9th compartment and survived for more than 6 hours. They actually le left notes, and when Kursk was eventually recovered, they found these notes. And so, yeah, we know pretty well what they were thinking and talking about. As oxygen ran low, the crew attempted to replace a potassium... So, sorry, to back up. Technically... Rescue was possible if the Russians had known sooner, and they should have known sooner. And there's actually evidence to suggest that they did know sooner, but there was a failure to pass information up the chain of command, because traditionally what happened was, like, if you were a fleet commander and you lost a boat, no matter what happened, you were probably going to be executed or sent to jail, or, like, it wasn't going to be good for you, and no one wanted to admit failures. It probably doesn't shock anyone to know that the Russian Navy, like most other parts of Soviet and the Russian structure, were pretty corrupt and like, not good. So, these sailors, to be clear, could have survived. The Russians had submarine, like, rescue equipment, which they did attempt to use eventually. And the British were in Scotland, so they had, they had availability as well. And there was actually attempts by the British to help long before the Russians admitted help, or needed help, and I'll talk about that in a second. But, to be clear, rescue was possible. <laughs> But they did survive for six hours, uh, and they could have been rescued in that time, but oxygen obviously was running low, and the crew attempted to replace a potassium superoxide chemical oxygen cartridge, but unfortunately that fell into the oily seawater and exploded on contact. The resulting fire killed several members and triggered another flash fire that consumed the remaining oxygen and suffocated the rest of the survivors. 
So no one on Kursk survived in the end. Over four days, the Russian Navy failed to attach four different diving bells and submersibles to to the escape hatch. So technically how this should have worked, or how it could have worked if the Russians had known sooner, I guess. If they'd figured it out faster, which they could have, they would have been able to send a rescue. So all navies, all submarine navies have basically like these other little mini submarines, which are meant to go down to where, and they can go to like greater depths than most regular submarines. And they go down and attach to an escape hatch so that they can then lift the other members through. And it's really, really cramped. These are tiny vessels. They're only basically made to like get you from the boat to the surface. But they're kind of like the type of ones that go down. They're like the submersibles, like Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> like they're like the type of submersible that goes down for that kind of stuff, although they are manned. So then they would have sent it down, attached it to the escape hatch, and technically they could have then gotten the 23 men out. So then over the next four days, they sent multiple diving bells and other submersibles to try and attach this escape hatch, and they couldn't. Their response was rightly criticized as being slow and inept. And basically, there was an entire systemic systemic failure because no one wanted to take blame or acknowledge what had happened. The Russians lied and manipulated the news and media and rebuffed help from the British who offered their assistance. Um, The British... I watched I watched another documentary on Kursk, actually. I think it was a BBC one. And uh, they interviewed a British submarine captain who was in charge, essentially, of rescue responses. And he was, like, already loading up the equipment and shipping out before he even had official orders from the Royal Navy or from the Russian Navy because he was a submariner. And it's, it's, it's like, kind of what we talked about with the, the cosmonauts and astronauts. It's a brethren. Like, there's very few of you who do the same thing. And no matter what country you're with, it's dangerous as hell and... So he was, like, on his way there before he even had approval. But the Russians basically were on the news saying, like, yeah, okay, Kursk has sunk, but, you know, we're, we've been in contact with survivors, like, we're all good. And then they were saying, like, no, no, like, they were just, they, they one commander lied, literally lied on TV saying that, yep, yeah, we uh, have all the survivors, blah, 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 like, we've been in contact, all this stuff. So they like really misled everybody. They misled families of people on the boat saying that there were survivors when in reality there weren't because they fucked up already. All this stuff. It was really bad. And then to make it even worse, <laughs> President, President Vladimir Putin was on vacation. Mm. And he stayed on vacation. When Kursk sank, he was told to stay on vacation. And he remained on vacation. And it wasn't until five days after the boat sank that he authorized the Navy to finally accept British and Norwegian offers of assistance. So Norwegian divers finally opened a hatch to the escape trunk in the boat's flooded ninth compartment seven days after the sinking, and they found, obviously, no survivors. Uh, the official investigation concluded that the crew of Kursk was preparing to load a dummy kit, so fat girl, torpedo, when a faulty w- weld in its casing leaked high-test peroxide, causing the torpedo's kerosene fuel to explode. Uh, the explosion blew off the door, or blew off the inner and outer tube doors, ignited a fire, destroyed the bulkhead between the first and second compartments, damaged the control room, and incapacitated or killed the control room crew. The torpedo manufacturer challenged this hypothesis, but it is generally accepted that this is what happened, uh, because a uh, Royal Navy submarine had sank of a similar thing a lot earlier. Vice Admiral Valery Ryzantsev, drew attention to the systemic faults in the Russian Navy, such as the risky use of highly volatile HTP torpedoes, known to have caused the sinking of the HMS Sidon. He accused the Russian Navy of failing to properly train the crew, who did not appear to have properly closed the inner torpedo room safety door designed to protect the rest of the submarine, 
and basically called out every other failure <laughs> that happened because there was a lot of them. Eventually, the commission concluded that poor oversight, budget cuts, and incomplete maintenance inspectors... Inspections, I think that's supposed to say. Yeah, <laughs> incomplete maintenance inspections, not inspectors, contributed to the explosion. So basically, this was an entirely preventable thing. Families of the victims were obviously not happy. And there's footage of this press conference where victims engage, and it's really, like, it's really volatile. Um, they're engaging in this with Putin. And it was sanitized for Russian audiences, but the footage was leaked to international media. And it actually shows this Russian mother, like, just lighting into Putin. She's, like, giving it to him. Like, you know, you fucked up. Like, our children are dead. Like, we don't know anything. You didn't tell us anything. You could have done all this stuff. You haven't done anything. Like, losing it, rightfully. And she's actually, like, literally sedated. Like, forcibly. Like, these guys, like, get up and grab her and, like, sedate her. Wow. And that used to be a thing in the Soviet Union a lot. And nobody ever really saw that because, obviously, they never showed it to people. Mm -hmm. But this footage got leaked. And, yeah. Kursk was not the most recent submarine disaster for the Russians, but it was definitely one of the worst. <laughs> there was actually a Russian sub submarine fire, like, this month. Wow. I lied. Sorry, last month. Okay. Uh, on July 1st, 2019, and it killed 14 submariners. Ooh. The U, the uh, Losharik spy submarine. Anyways. Uh, but yeah, I think Kursk was probably one of the most, like, well-televised and, like, well-known submarine disasters because uh, it was during peacetime and, I mean, a lot of attention was paid to the Russian Navy anyways because it was post-Cold War and yeah. whatnot, but... Kursk was, like, really, really heartbreaking to read about, and the documentary was really upsetting. Because <laughs> mm. I honestly can't imagine being trapped in a compartment under the sea. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> waiting well, for like... waiting for rescue, but also, like, probably knowing that everyone in charge is inept. <laughs> like... Yeah, well, it's also, like, when we were talking, when you were talking about Apollo 1. Yeah. Yeah, how helpless this whole situation is, because no matter what, you can't get into the compartment, because it collapsed. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, so I've, we're finally going to talk about the British, and it is very strange, but the British do not use submarines that much. I mean, they did during the Cold War, don't get me wrong, but any of the information I give you about British submarines during the Cold War will just basically repeat about the Russians and the Americans. So, the first commissioned British submarines were the Holland class, which were one, between 110 and 123 tons. They were 19.46 meters in length, and they were running on either petrol engines or electric motors. They were also quite fat. <laughs> they weren't like the submarines you kind of see where they're long and somewhat thin. No, they looked fat. They were capable of holding two torpedoes and eight crew members. The Holland One launched on in 1901 and it was the first British submarine to enter service. The program went up to Holland Five and all vessels were either decommissioned or lost prior to the First World War, you know, because as we said before, shoddy submarines. <laughs> Early submarines were yep. death traps. There are a lot of other submarines tried out by the British Navy during this time, but another one I'm going to talk about, it, it was the British C-class submarines, which were commissioned in October 1906 and resembled the long submarines we're familiar with. They could fit a crew of 16 with two torpedoes, but they were actually mostly, they were primarily used for coastal defense during the First World War as an alternative to sea mines. 
The British K-class submarines were the next prominent ones, and they nicknamed, they were given the nickname Calamity Class. Calamity spelled with a K. As none of the vessels were lost to enemy action, but six of, of the 18 made sank as a result of accidents. The British submarines were primarily used as in anti-U-boat warfare during the Battle of the Atlantic, with the Royal Navy sinking 12 U-boats while losing four of their own. Submarine services were cut back following the end of the Second World War, although they built and commissioned the first nuclear-powered submarine known as Dreadnought in 1960, based on the American models. The Resolution-class subs were designed as an SSBN, which carried a nuclear missile aboard, which is something Lindsay mentioned earlier. This was later replaced by the current Trident missile system, which is still a controversial subject in Scotland today. That was one of the things during the independence referendum. They want Scott, the Scottish government want these submarines gone. Mm-hmm. They want them out of their out of Scotland for moral reasons, yeah, and financial reasons. But the problem is that there is nowhere else to put these things. Mm. But Scotland may, has made it clear they want them gone. Yeah. <laughs> Despite the seemingly lack of use of submarines by the British, they would make submarine history during the 1982 Falkland Wars between them and Argentina. After the invasion, the British set up what is known as the Maritime Exclusion Zone, which was about 200 nautical miles surrounding the Falkland Islands, and declared that any Argentine warship entering within that exclusion zone would be immediately attacked by the British. During this time, a British task force was en route to the islands, in order to retake them from the Argentines, but it would take a few weeks before they would arrive. Until then, a bunch of nuclear submarines were stationed in and around the islands and were patrolling the islands to make sure no further Argentine vessels entered within the exclusion zone. On April 30th, the ARA General Belgrano was detected by the British nuclear-powered submarine Conqueror. Even though the Belgrano did not enter within the exclusion zone, it was deemed a threat by Commander Chris Reeford Brown, and he advised Margaret Thatcher, the British Prime Minister at the time, that the the Belgrano should be attacked, as opposed to threat to the incoming British forces. On May 2nd, Conqueror fired three torpedoes at the Belgrano and striking it and sinking the ship. In total, 772 men were rescued by Argentine and Chilean ships between the 3rd and 5th of May. However, 323 sailors, which included two civilians on board died as a result. This attack accounted for half the number of Argentine troops that were killed in the Falkland Wars. The sinking of the Belgrano is still controversial today as it was seen as an illegal attack on a ship that was not in the exclusion zone. This was the second time in which a ship was sunk by any submarine since World War II, the first being when the Indian frigate INS forgive my pronunciation for this, Kirki was sunk by a Pakistani submarine PNS Hangor during the 1971 Indo-Pakistani War. This is also the first time any nuclear-powered submarines had sunk a ship during military operations. British submarines have since launched tomahawks against um, in the Afghan War, the war in Iraq, and the first Libyan civil war during the no-fly zone. In March 2007, the Tireless was participating in experiments with the Applied Physics Laboratory Ice Station. On the 21st of March, 
An oxygen generator candle exploded, killing leading weapons engineer Paul McCann and weapons engineer Anthony Hunterod while the boat was under ice X-07 near the North Pole. The vessel was able to surface and was attended to by the El- Elmendorf Air Base in Alaska. A third crew member suffered non-life-threatening injuries, and this ended British under- under-ice operations until 2016. All right. I would have probably done the same, done the same thing. It's just like, yeah, let's not go under the ice for a bit until we, you know, sort this out. But they're doing it again because you know most of the submarines that I know about, like that I know of, that are used today, are used in the Arctic. Yeah. So that's the thing. Yeah, it's because well, you can hide there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's caused Canada a lot of grief because. The Americans and... Same with Sweden. They've had a lot of Russians in their waters Yeah, lately. but I mean, I know that every year or so there's like some kerfuffle because the British, or not the... It's not just the Americans, but it's mostly the Americans are entering our territorial waters. Mm-hmm. Usually in submarines. So, yeah. Speaking of Canada, Canada does have submarines. They're just not great. <laughs> As we mentioned before, <laughs> they currently operate four submarines, which are the Victoria class submarines, formerly known as the Upholder submarines, while they were in British hands. All four were originally built and operated by the British Royal Navy. They are 2,455 tons. They are 70.26 meters in length, run on two Paxman Valenta diesel electric engines, and can carry up to 18 Mark. 48 torpedoes and a crew of 48 they can reach 12 knots on the surface and 20 knots underwater that's the thing submarines are faster underwater than they are on the surface that's another reason why nuclear powered submarines were such a big like step forward because yeah they're made to be underwater they don't really do well on the surface they were never made to be on the surface so it sucks when they had to be up there just charging batteries (laughs) it's like fuck so they saw when you plug your phone in you're like come on yeah exactly (laughs) So they saw service with the British only from 1990 until 1984 when all were laid up. Initial attempts to sell the subs to Pakistan failed and instead the French Agosta 90B class was purchased instead. And this caused quite a scandal in Pakistan known as the Karachi Affair. I didn't go too much into it, but uh, basically it was uh, the French French were getting kickbacks from the Pakistanis because of the subs. Which were expensive as shit, I should say. For example, in in 1998, Canada agreed to purchase the Upholder class subs for $750 million. The Canadian Navy then renamed them the Victoria class. The subs were first used by Canada in 2000, during which it underwent 18 months worth of, of system tech checks. So they wanted to make sure these were fine. Unfortunately, that wasn't Enough. The last of the subs, the Shakutami, finished refitting and set off to CFB Halifax on October 2nd, 2004. Three days later, while on the surface traveling past County Mayo, Ireland, seawater got in through an open hatch that was not sealed properly, or couldn't be sealed properly, excuse me, causing an electrical panel, panel to short out. The resulting fire caused a power outage, stranding the vessel afloat in rough seas. 
Nine crew members were affected by smoke inhalation, and the heavy seas also affected the boat and the attempted rescue of those on board. The crew was rescued by members of the Irish Navy with the aid from the British as well. Three crew were airlifted for medical treatment, but Lieutenant Chris Sanders died from complications of smoke inhalation. The other two survived. Shikudumi was towed back to Fastlane Naval Base in Scotland on October 2nd and reached its destination on October 10th. The aftermath of of the fire caused a slight rift in Anglo-Canadian relations. For one thing, the Canadian media blamed the British for the fire, which was, like, true. It was the British's fault, but, I mean, at the same time, at least let the investigation finish before you jump... The Canadian media is kind of fucked <laughs> in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. So, they, I mean, they suspected they knew the vessel was unsafe, which I don't know if that's true. I'm not going to say. The UK Secretary of State for Defense, Jeff Hoon, did not help the situation. As after he expressed his condolences to the family of Lieutenant Saunders, he immediately afterwards stated Canada would be charged for the cost of the rescue. Even though it wasn't Canada's fault. Good. The, this caused outrage, particularly by Canadian World War II veterans. Shikudumi was repaired and has been in service ever since. And as far as I know, we did not have to pay the cost of the... Well, I sure should hope not. Yeah. Jeff Hoon, if you're still alive, you're a dick. <laughs> anyway... Canada, this is this is something I just found out while I was researching the other day, while I was finishing research last night. Canada did plan to build ten nuclear power subs in nineteen eighty seven. Could you imagine Canada having nuclear powered subs? No. So it was in order to monitor the Canadian Arctic Ocean to reaffirm sovereignty sovereignty over their territorial waters, which, you know, Makes sense. But the project was extremely controversial due to public outcry because it was going to be expensive, first of all. I mean, also the Americans were against the project, but I don't really give a shit about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, And uh, because Brian Mulroney and the Progressive Conservatives wanted to win re-election the following year, they canceled the project. And they won re-election. Coincidence? Probably, but anyway... Also interesting to note that for a long time, West Edmonton Mall had more submarines than the entire Canadian Navy. Submarines are gone yeah. from West Ed, which is sad. Do you ever? Do you remember going on the, that ride? No. I have like vague memories of it, and I remember it being awesome and scary. But yeah, the the unfortunately the submarines aren't there. I mean, they laid there for like a decade unused before they were taken away i think they were they were there for a long time just sitting there not being used yeah they were but uh also i have seen one of finland's like only remaining submarines though oh really yeah so so finland had four submarines in total or sorry five i lied but they haven't had submarines since uh 1946 because they were technically a member of the Axis. <laughs> it's, yeah. The 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 Finnish situation is really really confusing, but they uh, they do still have one of the submarines, Vesico. 
Currently, it's like located in Suomenlinna, which is oh, this little island in the Bay of Helsinki, essentially, like in Helsinki. And I haven't been inside or anything, but I've just kind of seen it. Like, I've seen it there. The Germans aren't allowed to have submarines either. So after World War II, they lost, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> and part of the uh, the 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 rep- or the um, terms terms, I guess. Yeah, at the end is like no more submarines. <laughs> And so that also included the Finns, who had five. But uh, I don't know how illustrious their navy was in terms of, like, submarines. I mean, the, the Finnish navy was fabulous. I just, like, submarine navy, I don't really know how successful it was, actually, or how much they used submarines. I haven't really looked that much into it. But I do think it's funny that I have seen, <laughs> like, one of the only Finnish submarines in existence. Uh, I've at least, like, seen it in passing. But yeah. I guess should probably explain why we decided to do this episode, at least. I had the idea because I love submarine movies. But also I kind of wanted to do a, like a rotating, not really rotating, but like a, a little series within Panastoria where like we cover different aspects of like warfare, I guess. So um, we talk a lot about like armies and we talk a lot about the Air Force and we do talk a lot about the Navy, but... We don't talk a lot about, you know, submarines and tanks and things like that all the time. And I think they're infinitely fascinating, even if morally questionable <laughs> in their uses a lot of the time. But I think they're fascinating. And so I just kind of wanted to do something on that. But also it was a really good excuse to watch Hunt for Red October again. <laughs> so. And Crimson Tide. And I haven't rewatched K-19, but I haven't watched that one in a while. That one's a lot harder to watch, though. I didn't realize until last night how long it has actually been since I've seen a submarine movie like Hunt for Red October. We should probably watch one after we record this. Probably, yeah. <laughs> uh, they're great. I, I I haven't watched Crimson Tide in probably t- a year. I haven't rewatched it in a while, actually. Well, I wanted. I was going to rewatch it before we recorded this, but I just ran out of time. I rewatched some of my favorite clips from Hunt for Red October. Uh... Hunt for Red October, I think, is my favorite submarine movie. It's a great one. I think it's, like, number one for me. And then I think... I think I'm going to say Crimson Tide next. Uh, fun fact, actually, about the movie Crimson Tide. So the Crimson... For any of you who have not seen Crimson Tide, it's set on the submarine, the USS Alabama. And in the movie, footage of the submarine diving is actually real footage of the USS Al- the real USS Alabama diving. Hmm. So that's pretty cool. Sweet. There's a scene, there, yeah, I love that movie. Um, the last uh, submarine... Roll related, Tide. <laughs> yeah, the last submarine-related thing I saw was a Simpsons episode. <laughs> Homer gets fired from the power plant, and he ends up joining the Navy reserves. And he ends up on a submarine with uh, Barney and Moe. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And, uh, you know, things end up going wrong, as they do as in the Simpsons. That happens, yes. Yeah, but... It's a good episode, especially because they drop uh, in the navy, as saying that it's their uh, it's a traditional sea shanty. They they sing <laughs> whenever any vessel goes out to sea for the first time. <laughs> uh, I love that episode. Oh, it's I good. I just think submarines are cool. I don't know. I like. I've always been interested. I think space is really cool, and I think like that connection is what's part of made submarines so like interesting to me. And I think, like, obviously submarine movies have done that, too, because they just inherently, like, while they are always dramatized and things like that, because that's how movies work, um, I think submarines just lend themselves to, like, drama 
because of just the inherent nature of the fact that you're in a steel tube under the water. And you well, can't talk to anyone but the people in your boat for, yeah, for well, three months. Like, I got I to give it to the folks who went to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. Yeah, I know. Because, like, I got to look up when the first one was. David Cameron is not the first person to reach it. Dang. And he's not even the person who went the deepest in the ocean ever. <sighs> Get it together, James Cameron. Well, I mean, people keep on saying he is, but it's like, no, he really isn't. Mm-hmm. He really, really, really isn't. Now, it was a British and a French uh, scientist. They went in a rather... Like, James Cameron went in that thing that's kind of like... He, he, he sat down in it, and it was kind of went straight down, like, lengthwise. Yeah. Uh, and he sat down in it. This was... The one that actually went down was... It was a proper, uh, like, some, like, tubular submarine, just with extra thick walls and thick glass. And it took, I think they said it took like six hours to reach the, the, to reach the bottom. And after six hours, they only stayed there for like five minutes because one of the windows cracked. Scary. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we, we want to get up. But I also heard communication from the Marianas Trench to the surface takes 14 minutes. Hmm. That's like insane. It was quicker to talk to the astronauts. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I was watching a video about kind of how this works. So obviously, like, water. The thing about, like, and the reason for that ultimately is because of water. Like, water. They have to use, like, really, really low-frequency radio waves to communicate with submarines. And submarines have to be close to the surface. They don't have to be at the surface, but they have to be pretty close. And so that's another part of being a submariner that's so hard is that when you're on these long deployments for months, that you only really get messages from home in, like, very short bursts. Like, this documentary talked about, uh, I can't remember what they're called now, but basically you got these, like, messages that were almost like tweets that were, like, you know, 240 character type, like, quick message. You got, like, three sentences from home, basically. So you only got enough information to know that, like, you know, say hi and things like that. Yeah, no, submarines are uh, scary for that. It would definitely be faster to... I feel like space would be less isolating almost as a result because you can at least reach home. Yeah. Here's here's the information about the tree. It's called the Trieste Summer Bath Escape. Uh, the descent to the ocean floor took four hours and forty seven minutes at a descent rate of zero point nine meters per second. Jesus Christ, this thing was going really slow. After passing nine thousand meters or thirty thousand feet, one of the outer plexiglass window panes cracked, shaking the entire vessel. The two men spent twenty minutes on the ocean floor. The temperature in the cabin was 7 degrees Celsius, 45 degrees Fahrenheit at the time. While at a maximum depth, Picard and Walsh unexpectedly regained the ability to communicate with the support ship using sonar, hydrophone, voice communication system at a speed of almost 1.6 kilometers, about five times the speed of sound in air. It took about seven seconds for a voice message to travel from the craft to the support ship. And another seven seconds for an answer to return. Okay, so I lied. <laughs> uh, it was a lot shorter. I thought it was 14 minutes, but nope. So the ascent took three hours and 15 minutes. Yeah. So that was the... I, I should have probably talked a little bit more about this because I, I, I've, I've learned a lot about this expedition and it's actually really fascinating. But yeah, they went... It was called... the. Uh, they descended uh, into the Challenger Deep, which is in the Marianas Trench, which is the deepest known point in... The world's ocean. 
So yeah, for a long time, these were the most isolated two men for longest time. I'm good. I'll, I'm good. I don't. Yeah, really I would. Wanna... I wouldn't. I don't. I'd much rather go to the moon than. Under, I, I'm. I have a phobia of water. Hmm. So. Um, um, I don't know if I'm claustrophobic, but I'm pretty pretty sure a submarine would make me claustrophobic. You're fine in the. Uh, in the pillow fort. But, yeah. You know. But that's anyway. a pillow fort. Yeah. <laughs> Different um, than a submarine. Yeah. So some, uh, what is it? Some housekeeping. Housekeeping. That's that's the word. I almost said housewarming, but that's not it. We only have some, two, one. We only have one episode left in the season, and it is uh, we're just. It's a quick rundown of all the prime ministers. It's basically just us going to be saying some of the good things they did, some of the bad things they did. You know, if they did anything. If they did <laughs> anything. Admittedly, there were some prime ministers that didn't do much looking at you joe clark um yeah it'll uh be an interesting experience where we all get to learn about canadian prime ministers since none of us know anything including us and we're canadian (laughs) i mean we'll we'll and then we're we're, it's basically just going to be us like kind of it's sort of going to be like a other nonsense episode but it's a regular panastory episode yeah it'll be a little more formal than that but it'll be pretty pretty relaxed we're kind of Closing out the season on a more, like, relaxed level just because it's been a bit of a shit show lately. Yeah. Um, in our, well, my life in particular, but in our lives. Yeah, hopefully that'll be out soon. It, yeah. I, obviously, um, various things in lives yeah. are dependent on, like, it depends on that. But you guys seem to be really understanding about this, so thank you so much. Shout out to everyone who's kept downloading our episodes while we've been gone. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. We're almost uh, at 4,000. Are we at 4,000 or we're almost at 4,000? Close. close. We're around 3,500. Yeah, we're working on some new projects. We have a YouTube channel now in case you haven't noticed. Now that we've posted on it in a little while. Just trying to keep up with social media. I don't know. I'm not Again, once we go into the break, we're still going to do stuff. Yeah, we'll be, we'll be present. We'll be posting lots. Um... Expect lots of Kevin content. Yeah. We've been stocking up on. Well, I've been we, stocking up. We on. were expect like we were thinking of maybe doing an event during September, but I don't think we're going to do that now. Yeah, we'll have to reassess. But um, yeah, well, keep keep posting on our social media pages. Uh, follow the blog. We have our first contributor. I'm hoping to get some more soon. Um, yeah, it's been a good summer, and uh, we'll we'll be back soon with our our final episode, and we'll do more of a formal season wrap up and kind of talk about what we're gonna attack in the next while so yeah we'll um we we, we still will do a, another nonsense episode eventually yeah. um j- obviously for various reasons we couldn't do that and i apologize we promise you that but you guys understand anyway we love you all so i think that's it so thank you so much for listening this is jonah i'm Lindsay. And we're, I I think you can already hear it now. We're leaving you off within the Navy because my army buddy John said he would not forgive me if I, if I didn't do this. And also in reality, we had to, we had to play it after mentioning Simpsons. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you guys. See ya.